welcome to church. My name is Pete, and uh, I'm really glad that you could join us on church on Sunday. And Dorette cooks lunch, reads the Bible. Is there anything else you're doing today, Dorette? It's enough, isn't gonna it? You're going to enjoy lunch with us. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much. Um, okay, so you might uh, know of the, um, the different generations, the seven or so generations, six generations that are currently alive. Um, so I, I, I don't know, if you're too embarrassed, don't raise your hands, but I'd love to know from where we are now, um, who belongs to Generation Alpha, born 2013 to 2025? Anyone here? They're probably in Sunday school or, <laughs> or they're probably in the youth Bible study. Okay, how about the next one? Who are our Gen Zers? Hands up. Okay, Millennials, Gen Y, that's the same one. Okay, quite a lot of Millennials. Anyone in Gen X? Yes, Gen X, that's me as well. Baby boomers, they're a bit shyer, but thank you. Now, does anyone know what the generation before the baby boomers are called? Really old people? <laughs> Respect your elders, son. You, you millennials. Um, now, what, what are they called? Anyone? Any idea? Generation, what's before X? <laughs> um, they're actually sometimes called the silent generation, maybe because no one knows what they're called. Um, sometimes called the builders, right? So you've got the builders and then the boomers. But in Australia, uh, uh, it's actually quite popular to call them the lucky generation. Now, well, why are they called the lucky generation? Well, it's because most of them who were born in the 1930s were too young to fight in World War II. And then they were too old to fight in the Vietnam War. And they experienced a lot of the post-war boom economically when they were adults. So unlike the generation before them or even unlike the generation after them, they had it pretty good. They were called the lucky generation. But then if you compare them to us, pretty much everyone here after them, right, are luckier than they are. Like, unlike anywhere else in the world, in any other age, I would gather that most of us here have never experienced war firsthand. They were called the lucky generation because they missed having to fight in two wars. Well, that's all of us, pretty much, isn't it? We take for granted that we never have to fight in a war, not on our shores, never have to be conscripted. Right? That's just taken as for granted, but actually that's not normal around the world. Now, the reason why I say that and how abnormal it is for all of us, the real lucky generations, you see, when we come to war passages like the one we just read in 1 Samuel 11, we actually don't know what to do with them, do we? I, I think about it, because we have no experience of war, it's so outside of our experience, we live in peace, and so automatically we always think every war, any war, is bad. And yet the Bible is full of wars. Now, many are bad, for sure, part of the fallen world that we live in. But, you know, in this fallen world, some wars are just. Some wars, you would even say, are the lesser of two evils or are necessary. And there are plenty of wars in the Bible waged by God Himself. In fact, there's a title for God that's translated in our NIVs as Lord Almighty, and literally it means... Lord of armies, or Yahweh, Lord of armies. Now, 1 Samuel 11 is one such war passage and key to the story of Saul, which we picked up starting from last week. 
And because it's key to the story of Saul, it's actually key to the story of God's dealings, not only with his people Israel, but actually thousands of years later, key to our experience. And I'm going to encourage us to put aside our discomfort about war for a little bit. We sort of need to enter into their worldview, even what they think about war, or we'll actually miss the main message. Now, of course, there's going to be lots of unanswered questions about war and what kind of war and how does this apply to us now that we are in Jesus's, you know, times. Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to enter the story and we're going to glean as much as we can out of it, even though it's an uncomfortable war story, but we're going to see how it's relevant to us and maybe we'll get some answers as well about those questions about war that we have. Let me pray and we'll get into it. Father, we pray that as you uh, show us this passage of scripture which may make us uncomfortable may seem so foreign to us because of our experience or lack of experience of war father you would still speak to us because your word is like a double-edged sword and you have something to say to us today in jesus name amen uh so a bit of quick context we've been doing one samuel for a few months now Uh, a couple of weeks ago you remember uh one in one samuel chapter eight god's people asked for a king a human king but in doing so they were rejecting their true king who is god But God doesn't strike them down. He actually gives them what they ask for. And then the next chapter we saw last week with Pastor Marshall, along comes a guy whose name means asked for, Saul, all right? And so last chapter we saw the whole donkey incident and, you know, looking for Samuel. We're introduced to Saul. He meets Samuel. His destiny is changed. He's sort of a clueless young man searching for his dad's uh, donkeys or goats or whatever it is, but he's found by Samuel. And he's found by God, and he's made king, anointed as king. But then the chapter, you'll remember, ends sort of ambiguously. All right, Saul is, what's he doing? He's hiding. So we don't really know what to make of him, what kind of king he will be. And then also the chapter ends with some supporting him, but some kind of ridiculing him. And that's where we come to today's chapter, chapter 11. But we start with the threat. So you read it, read, uh, we read earlier in, in verse 1 of chapter 11, please keep it open. Um, we look towards Israel's east for this threat. Now, the Philistines get mentioned a lot, all right? And the Philistines, though, are on the west. They'll come back. We'll hear about them later because remember, Saul was made king so that he could rescue God's people from the Philistines, the enemies to the west, and, and Samuel had given Saul instructions to do something about the garrison of the Philistines in the west. But we sort of don't hear from them for now. Instead, the threat is from the east with the people of the Ammonites or the, uh, from the land of Ammon. Okay? And they were ancient enemies of Israel. Now, their king is a, name, a man named Nahash. Now, uh, what we read earlier in verse 1 simply says that he went up to besiege this town of Jabesh-Gilead, and it's there in the red. It's in the northern east, northeastern part of Israel. But if you look at um, your NIV Bibles, even the Pew Bibles you've got, and you look at uh, footnote A, you'll see that some manuscripts have extra information. In fact, it's part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is actually some helpful information. So let me read that to you, and you can follow on the tiny little you know, footnote on the bottom. And this is what it says. It says, Now Nahash, king of the Ammonites, oppressed the Gadites and the Reubenites severely. He gouged out all their right eyes and struck terror and dread in Israel. 
Not a man remained among the Israelites beyond the Jordan whose right eye was not gouged out by Nahash, king of the Ammonites, except that 7,000 men fled from the Ammonites and entered Jabesh-Gilead. That's kind of nice background information, isn't it? That gives you the sense of desperation. He's already done this to almost every male in the region, and 7,000 of them, refugees, didn't get their right eye gouged out, hiding in the town of Jabesh-Gilead. And so when they're requesting a treaty there, it's not an equal type treaty. It's basically, let us live and we'll be your slaves, yeah? Let us live and we'll be your slaves. We'll serve you. Now, his answer is, of course, yes, I'll let you live. I'll agree to this treaty. But you, 7,000 of you who are left and have your right eyes, you'll have to give me your right eyes. Now, you might be wondering why I gouge out their right eye. Well, it's verse 2 says it's, it's so that there'd be a disgrace. And we're talking probably just about the men there. But also because men, as they go into battle... Um, and back then, the men were the ones who went into battle, all right? This is going to make it really hard for them to fight because most people are right-handed, right? So you hold your weapon in your right hand, you have your shield in your left hand, and if you're trying to duck behind your shield, you can only see out your right eye, can't you? And so without a right eye, it's going to be really hard to fight, to defend and fight. So that's what he was doing. He's making them so disabled that they can't do anything, uh, especially in battle, so they come back and say, okay, give us a week to consider. In the meantime, they're like, we hope someone will come and rescue us. Now, strangely, Nahash grants it. But why does he let them wait a week? Well, it's not mercy. Of course not. He's playing with them, right? It's like that schoolyard bully who's toying with his prey. That's what he's doing. So you get a sense, right? Their situation is really, really desperate and dire. They're trapped. They're besieged. They're facing slavery. All of their men right, are going to be permanently shamed, permanently disabled. What are they going to do? They need salvation. They need it to be rescued. And that word, deliverance or rescue or salvation, depending on the translation you're using, it actually occurs three times in this chapter. So we know this is the theme of the chapter. They need it to be rescued. Now, on the 15th of May, 1940, Prime Minister Winston Churchill uh, gets a phone call from the Premier of France, and the phone call is not good. You see, the Allied forces, this was early in World War II, they were soundly beaten and driven back. And it all happened so quickly. You might have heard of the Nazis and Blitzkrieg and their kind of, you know, lightning-fast conquest. Well, Holland had fallen, Belgium had fallen, Luxembourg had fallen, one after the other. Denmark and Norway were about to go. And the 300,000 British and French Allied soldiers were retreating, and they could only go west, away from the Nazis. And the only possible escape is, of course, they had to somehow get across that body of water, somehow get to England, across the English Channel. And they were going to retreat all the way to a place called Dunkirk in the northwest of France. But how are you going to get 300,000 men right? Across. And they were facing, by the way, 1,800 1, Nazi tanks rolling towards them, 300 bombers, right, who could drop bombs on them. They were lucky if they were going to get 20,000 across, but 300,000, they were about to be decimated when you've got ocean on one side or sea on one side and the enemies on the other, 
But if they were decimated, the war would be lost as far as the allies were concerned. That was a desperate situation, wasn't it? And history reminds us there are plenty of situations like that when desperate times face oppressed people. And there are actually wars that must be fought, that freedoms must be defended. No one, no one really disputes that, the case, with, especially with World War II, whether we're talking about the Nazi threat or the Japanese threat in the Pacific. And I want you to know that in places around the world today, that kind of threat is constant for a lot of people. In Africa, so many countries in constant, constant conflict. In Sudan, Ethiopia, Nigeria, among others. And we're talking about evil men with evil regimes. There's death, there's destruction. You might have heard of kidnapping. There's rape of civilians, women, children. You see, only in the comfortable West today are we hesitant to do anything. But when evil is at your door, real evil, right? Deliverance is not no war. It's not more negotiations. Often in these situations, deliverance comes with just war, with good having to triumph over evil. And, and that's the situation that people face in Jabesh Gilead. So where is their hope? Where's the hope of salvation, a hope of rescue for them? Well, before we get to the next point, um, I want you to know what they did not do. What didn't they do? It doesn't mention anything about them crying out to God. Right? They didn't do that. It doesn't mention anything about them crying out to the king-elect, the king that they just anointed and appointed last chapter, Saul, who's supposed to lead and save them. No, they don't mention that either. Right? They were going to be enslaved to a foreign king, and there's no mention either of their king, Yahweh God, or even God's appointed king, Saul. No mention at all. They were desperate, but they were certainly not deserving of rescue. Yet, rescue does come. So verse 4, When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Now, I want you to see where Gibeah, which is Saul's hometown, was. Okay, so it's there in the red circle. And you can see it's not actually that close to Jabesh Gilead. It's about 65 kilometers away, which for us is like a, you know, a drive. But, you know, this is ancient world, so 65K is a long way to go. Um, but there's a reason why Jabesh Gilead and Gibeah, Saul's hometown, were sort of linked together. It's because since the book of Judges, again, we did that a... I think last year, there's a special bond between this city, Jabesh Gilead, and Saul's tribe, Benjamin. Um, some of you might remember at the end of Judges, really, really horrible stuff's happened, including uh, this sordid rape and murder of, of, of the Levite's concubine. Um, now, in that situation, the whole of Israel go to war, right, with Benjamin, because it happened in the town of of Benjamin, in one of the towns of Benjamin. The only town that didn't side with the whole of Israel to go to war against Benjamin was, you guessed it, Jabesh Gilead. Now, because they didn't go to war against Benjamin in the civil war for punishing Benjamin for what they did over the, um, the concubine, the result was Jabesh Gilead were punished 
by having to provide wives for this decimated tribe because the Benjamites lost, all right? And all, all their men um, were, were basically destroyed. And, and uh, they were decimated and they needed wives. And, and so they made this town that didn't go to war and didn't participate in war, they made them provide wives for the people of Benjamin. Long story short, it's likely that Saul and others in the tribe of Benjamin were related to the people of Jabesh Gilead, right? Because they're the ones who provided the wives, right? So there's a link, probably by blood. And so that's why the news came to Saul's hometown, which is in the tribe of Benjamin. Well, interesting though, when the, the news came, it's not like the news came to Saul. You notice that? It's not like they reported it to Saul saying, hey, you're the new king, save us. No, no, no. He hears about it. And where is he when he hears about it? No, oh, he's plowing his field. That's pretty anticlimactic for someone who's just appointed the new king of Israel, right? It seems like Saul, even after the events of last chapter, just kind of went back to what he was doing. Nothing's really changed. But then, of course, now things are about to change. Saul can't remain anonymous forever. So let's read uh, verse 5 just then. Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What's wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. Now, there's bad anger, and then there's good anger. Right? Good anger is when you're angry at injustice, angry at threats to innocence, um, like, for example, I don't know if you've heard that the Philippines, which is so close to Australia, really, is one of the worst places for child sex trafficking. Did you know this? Maybe 100,000 children are trafficked from the Philippines for sex, either in child sex rings or even trafficked abroad. Some are kidnapped, but you know a lot of them are actually sold by their own parents and relatives. Now, when you hear about that and how miserable and horribly abusive that is, yes, feel sad, yes, feel compassion, but if in some way you're not feeling angry, a just anger, then maybe we haven't really understood how horrible it is. Now, we know that Saul's anger here is just because it happens just after God's Holy Spirit comes on him and takes a hold of him. And so he's angry. Then look what he does. Verse 7, we'll keep reading. He took a pair of oxen. He cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. It's a pretty shocking, violent call to arms. Poor cow. But anyway, um, it's supposed to ring a bell because remember I said at the end of Judges is a horrible incident with the Levite and the concubines. We won't relive it. But the last time someone or something was cut into pieces and sent to the tribes of Israel to get them to action was during that time of Judges. But that was a time when Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Remember that's sort of the theme of the book of Judges? Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Only now when it happens again, this time with oxen thankfully, not a human being, Israel finally had a king. And now it's time for action. So something's going to happen. So let's keep reading. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah, 30,000. All right? Rescue was coming. 
for that besieged town of Jabesh Gilead. Rescue was coming because now we have a rescuer. So what happens in the following verses, we read before we won't read it again. So they get back to Nahash. They say, hey, here's our decision. In verse 10, our NIV translated as, you know, we'll surrender to you. Uh, it actually doesn't quite capture the words. Literally, they say, we'll come out to you. Now, of course, Nahash thinks, oh, you're surrendering to me. But of course, there's a double meaning. We'll come out to you. What they meant deceptively was they're going to come out to fight, which is exactly what happens. Right? Saul leads them before dawn right, to ambush the Ammonites, and they win. They win convincingly. They came out as one. The Ammonites were so decimated that not even two of them could stand together. There's a real contrast between the scattering of the Ammonites and the unity of the Israelites. But you'll notice, though, the actual battle is only described in one verse. Like this whole thing is lead up, but only verse 11 talks about the battle. And it's like so convincing. They don't go through everything. It's just it happened. They won. And the reason why, of course, there's only one verse for the battle is because that's really not the main focus of the chapter. It's not really about the battle. It's not really about Saul. Who is actually behind the rescue? That's the more important focus, isn't it? Yes, Saul, but how did Saul get the courage? Right? Things change in verse 6 when the Spirit of God rushed upon him, literally rushed upon him, like in the book of Judges. How did the people unite? So many hundreds of thousands of them unite such a large army why would they bother sending such a large army for one single town? Why did they care? Well, verse 7 is because, do you see there? God was involved. The terror or the dread of the Lord fell on them. You see, the whole turning points of this chapter, the victory happened because the Spirit of the Lord came on Saul and the dread of the Lord fell on the people. The Lord of armies was behind this from beginning to end. God was behind their rescue. And that's why... They won. Now back to Dunkirk. You remember that? Right? The Allies backed up 300,000 Allied soldiers. Well, what happened next is nothing short of miraculous. You see, on the 24th of May, the Nazis could have just advanced and annihilated the Allies. And then on the 24th of May, Hitler did something that even his, today historians don't really know why he did. He stopped. He actually stopped the offensive, right? He stopped for some unknown reason. And so he gave three days for the Allies to form a bit of a defensive perimeter so that more troops can get funneled to Dunkirk. But then now you've got a problem because now we've got 300,000 troops, but they're stuck in Dunkirk. How are they going to get across the channel? Well, something else happened. You see, the weather changed. Rain and clouds and that just fell on that region, and so the German planes couldn't see, and they tried to bomb the, the, the troops there, but they were pretty ineffective for about three whole days. And then the winds turned, and the winds turned and started blowing the smoke from the bombs that didn't really do anything, all right, but they, they still bombed, but the smoke from the bombs now actually went over the channel because the winds were blowing west over the English Channel. And so when they started evacuating the troops... They were undetected by the Germans for days because of the smoke. And then the evacuation itself. Like, how are you going to get 300,000 people across the English Channel? Well, you know what? There was a call for every single boat, ship, 
right? So small boats, fishing boats, dinghies, cargo ships, everything. And that's what, um, that's what they did. So every single civilian vessel was used to ferry troops across the English Channel, right? Everything was used. Even those, you know, those boats you see in sometimes your neighbor's driveways, you know, there's tiny, yeah, they use those kind of things. And then miraculously, over these days, 300,000 troops were evacuated, and now the Allies had a fighting chance. Now, is that a coincidence? I don't think so, right? Because the world would have been so different, right? The world would have been so different if those Allies had been killed, You see, God is in control of world history. He was behind the rescue of Jabesh Gilead as well. Now, just as a quick kind of application to us, if God can do things on that scale, think about what He can do for you and me when we're found in a bind, okay? But let's keep moving. Let's keep moving in the story, and we'll come back to to, to kind of tease out the application a bit more later on. Um, The chapter ends, and we didn't read this earlier, but... um, Saul's kingship is now finally universally recognized. Um, Let's read a few chapters. So after the people basically um, recognize him as king because he's just saved the city in a great rescue like one of the ancient judges. Uh, Look at verse 12. It says, The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? That was from the end of last chapter when some people were kind of ridiculing Saul. And they said, Shall, uh, who was it that asked this? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. But Saul said, no one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. See what Saul is doing? He's showing mercy. In any culture, at any other time, right, they would have killed these men who basically uh, were guilty of treason. That's basically treason. But Saul doesn't. He shows them mercy. And then the chapter ends, we won't read it, but it ends with a united Israel. They enthrone Saul as king. They celebrate before the Lord, uh, their new king, uh, and they celebrate the king who now saved them. And it's a rare, happy moment, a rare, happy chapter for Israel, and it's a rare, happy moment for Saul. Without spoiling too much, this is actually the first time and the last time Saul does everything right, Okay. Even last chapter, Saul is kind of a bit ambiguous, a little bit clueless, right? Doesn't take action when he needs to. This chapter, he does everything right. But unfortunately, it'll be the last time as well. But I want us to notice the pattern that this chapter sets up. It sets up a pattern for how kingship of God's anointed person works. By the way, the the anointed person, the Hebrew is Messiah, right? That's the verb to anoint. Right? This is a pattern for messiahship. It started with Saul. You see, the king is anointed, right? Then there's some threat. Then this anointed king-elect steps up. Then there's some sort of supernatural rescue. And then after the rescue, there's an act of mercy or grace. And then the kingship is confirmed. All right, that is a pattern that's set up. We'll actually see where this leads to, which is my fourth point. I'm going to draw some threads together about how this chapter applies to us, and then we'll even answer some of the questions about war. So firstly, 1 Samuel 11 foreshadows the good news of Jesus, right? Did you catch that? Even as we looked at that pattern? Um, it's a little bit like this. The, the Old Testament 
is a bit like, you know, artists, when they draw a portrait, they draw these figure drawings. Some of you are into drawing. I know some of my kids are really good at drawing. And that's what they do. They do that kind of figure sketching, and then they fill it in. Um, 1 Samuel 11 is like the foreshadowing, the figure sketching. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the full portrait. All right? See, the God's great rescue plan, what He does through Jesus, is what that pattern that we looked up foreshadowed. Like, did you see the correlation? It'll, by the way, happen with the next Messiah after Saul, David. But ultimately, we see it fulfilled in Jesus. So King Anointed, remember Jesus, right at the beginning of His ministry, He is anointed at His baptism by the Holy Spirit. And of course, the threat, which He almost faces straight away, right, is Satan. He goes to the wilderness to be tempted. But that's only a, you know, a little foreshadow of the, the real threat, which is what Satan is going to do to all of God's people, sin and death and hell and slavery to him. So that's the threat. So what does Jesus do? He steps up, right? And he starts his ministry. And eventually it all goes to the cross of Jesus because at the cross is the supernatural rescue, where Jesus takes upon our sin in our place, pays the punishment, absorbs the wrath of God, the anger of God, the just anger of God against our sin, and in so doing brings forgiveness. See, at the cross, we have the great defeat of sin and death and Satan. And then, of course, there's an act of grace. Even at the cross, of course, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. But because of the cross, God can forgive us, rebels, and then, of course, kingship is confirmed. Jesus is raised from the dead, ascends to heaven to be at God's right hand. You see that pattern? The pattern of Saul actually fleshed out in the good news of Jesus. Okay, so that's the first point. The second thing we learn is that we need to recover the biblical worldview of warfare. As uncomfortable as we are, because the Bible uses the language of warfare, even, of course, in the New Testament, which we'll look at in a moment. And I think we've really lost something because we're so allergic to the idea of war. So one of the commentators uh, of this part of the Bible I read says, because we're so allergic to the idea of war, you notice in Christian circles, in ministry circles, we use the vocabulary of business and commerce instead. Yeah? And so he writes this, We are marketers, not soldiers. We have merchandise, not weapons. We face potential customers, not an enemy. We are out to expand our market share and increase our customer base, not to capture, defeat, and destroy a foe. We form a business plan, not a battle plan. We are more like advertisers than fighters. Isn't that true of church life? Isn't that true of church language? Isn't that true of church growth language? Isn't that true of evangelism language? We lose something when we do that, don't we? We lose something. See, the gospel, the good news of Jesus in this kind of talk, it, it's a product. It becomes a product that enhances your life. The iPhone 15. Yeah, I mean, it might be life-changing in some degree, but if you never get the iPhone 15, it doesn't really matter, okay? But that's what happens when the good news is a product. Except Jesus, He'll make your life better, but if you politely decline Him, no big deal. Do you see what I mean? But yet the Bible doesn't use that kind of language. It's not consumer language. It's not business language. It keeps bringing us back to the reality of a battle. 
So let me show you Ephesians chapter 6, one of the most famous passages about warfare. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're talking about war language, aren't we? But that leads to the next point. We are engaged in a real war, number three, but it is spiritual. Okay, we need to see that there is a real war, but it is spiritual. And the real war has always been spiritual. I mean, think about the example that I gave of the Philippines and the sex trafficking of children. What is driving that? Why, is it, why would parents sell their own children to sex trafficking? Well, it's because of lust. It's because of greed. It's because of power. It's because of abuse. They're the things driving trafficking of children. And if you really got to the heart of it, it's, it's something so sinister and evil that it's not just human, is it? There's deep and terrible evil that comes when a parent would sell their child to be trafficked. Now, the Bible has an explanation for that. That source of evil is spiritual, is supernatural, and it is Satan and his minions right? That's what's going on. There's a real enemy, a spiritual enemy. There's a real battle, a spiritual battle, but it's not just in the Philippines. Let's think about it. Lust and greed, power and abuse. It's everywhere. It's here. And these things are fighting for your soul and mine. And you think about our children, whether it's your children or the children of our church. They might, God willing, never be trafficked, but you know, every single day there is a war waged in their minds, and probably yours as well, a war waged, a war waged for their souls. Because every TV show and movie and website and app are shaping them to be slaves to lust and greed. They're being enslaved by an anti-God, anti-life worldview. As parents and churches, how can we compete when the enemy, in our case, hasn't forced his way into our gates, but through our media and our apps and our children and what they're exposed to, it's not like the enemy has forced his way to our gates. We've actually invited the enemy into our gates. That's how it works, right? You need to see how dangerous and sinister that is. There is a war out there. We have a real enemy evangelism, gospel work isn't commerce. It isn't business. It's not winning customers. It's winning souls. Colossians chapter 1 says, we're involved in a rescue mission. Well, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Okay, it's that kind of language. See, the alternative isn't just oh, you miss out on something great like the new iPhone, but ultimately it's inconsequential. No, no, no. It's the difference between eternal life and hell forever. Now, if you're not yet a Christian here and you're not quite convinced, you may not buy into this, and that's okay. Keep investigating, keep asking questions. But I hope you at least see why is it that your Christian friends and family care so much about you coming to know Jesus? Right? They're not just trying to spruik a product that can enhance your life but ultimately won't make a difference. From at least their point of view, this is the difference between heaven and hell salvation, and lostness forever. Do you see? 
See why it matters so much? Okay, next one. Number four, the gospel changes the way we fight. Um, do not hear me wrong. I'm not saying today, right, to love war or to fight wars, especially in, on, on, in this world, the kind of wars that we see all around the world. No, no, remember, our war is spiritual as well as this. The gospel, the good news of Jesus changes everything. See, when it comes, to, it changes everything, even when it comes to what we think about armed conflicts in this world, earthly wars now. See, when it comes to earthly wars now, because of the gospel, we actually should be seeking peace whenever possible. And the only war or wars that have to be fought have to be done with strict rules of combat, especially to protect civilians and innocent. You know, pacifism, right? The belief that we should have no wars. Um, Geneva Convention on things like human rights and, and treatment of POWs, prisoners of war. Do you know that all of that comes from a Christian worldview? You're not going to find it in other cultures, right, to the extent that it's, right? It's actually because of Jesus, the gospel, that we even want to fight in this way. Of course, not a lot of countries do, not even the West. But the reason we prioritize no war, and even in war, we prioritize mercy and fair treatment of enemies, is because we understand the real war is not here. The real world war is spiritual, Right? When you understand that the real world war is spiritual and the real enemy is spiritual, then it means that no human enemy is the enemy. Do you see what I mean? Why does Jesus say you can love your enemies? Why can we pray for our enemies? Why can we forgive and reconcile with former enemies? It's because the real enemy isn't them. Just think about that. Next time you have someone who maybe is mistreating you, someone who maybe has just been horrible to you, it's so easy to see them as the enemy, right? Remember, they're not your enemy. Your real enemy is Satan. Right? And so you can pray for them. You can love them. And Jesus, of course, has already defeated the real enemy when he died on the cross and rose again. And so now is time for us to actually share in that victory, to plunder Satan's domain. And our main job in this spiritual war is to invite people to transfer allegiance from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus and light. And every single one who does that will find mercy and grace. And of course, that changes the way we treat people, right? No person, however horrible, is ever beyond salvation and reconciliation with God and with God's children. And so the gospel changes the way we fight even spiritual war, and here's the thing, because Jesus already died on the cross and rose again, he's already victorious, we fight from victory. We don't fight for victory. Okay, you got that, the difference? Jesus has already won the war, so we fight from his victory, we don't fight for victory. And so you'll see in Ephesians, do you notice that when it comes to spiritual uh, warfare passage, you notice that our fight is to stand. He just tells us to stand, not advance, stand, stand your ground. Why can we stand our ground? It's not because we're defeated. It's because we've already won a victory, or Jesus already won. We just need to stand and defend that victory. So in your battle against sin, in your battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, remember, your Savior, King Jesus, is already victorious. So stand in that victory and keep standing firm. He's coming back to wrap it all up. Which leads to the final point, and that is our weapons are what? God's Word, God's Spirit, and 
prayer. So we won't read it uh, all, but I uh, highlighted for you Ephesians 6. Notice what it says. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And then verse 18, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. Now, actually, when it comes to prayer, having a war mentality really, really helps our prayer life. Um, it was Pastor John Piper that says, you know, we often pray as though prayer is like ringing for butler service. Ding, 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 oh God, can you make my life more comfortable? Ding, 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 God, I need you because, you know, things aren't really working out with my job. Ding, 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 oh, I would really love a new, le- uh, really love a new, um, uh, a new car or something like that, okay? Um, so prayer is like calling for butler service. And because prayer is like that, it doesn't really matter. He goes, no, 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 prayer in a warfare mentality is not calling for butler service. It's like getting on the radio in a war, in a battle, so that you can get some airstrike support because you're under pressure in the front lines. That's what prayer is. It's calling in the comms for the airstrike to come so that you can win the battle. All right? That changes your whole perspective on prayer, doesn't it? I'm not ringing for butler service to make my life more comfortable. I'm calling for the help of the Lord of armies because I'm engaged in a spiritual battle. Doesn't that make you pray differently? It certainly will. All right, those things that threaten your spiritual walk... Those things that grieve and anger you justly in this world, that threaten our churches and our children, that hardens the heart of those you love, what do you do? How do you fight it? You pray. You pray. Because it is the most powerful thing you could be doing. Um, Most accounts of the miracle of Dunkirk and how 300,000 allies got across the English Channel, they actually don't tell the full story. I only realized this recently. It's not just that there was a miracle and you can see behind it God's intervention. But actually, on the 24th of May, remember, the day when Hitler mysteriously stopped advancing happened to also be the day that King George called for a day of prayer. The day of prayer when all of the United Kingdom stopped Churches were full. Everyone flooded into church. Now, by the way, Winston Churchill didn't really want it. But King George, this is uh, Queen Elizabeth's dad, by the way, King George, right? right? He called for a day of prayer. And on this day of prayer was when everything started to turn around. Do you see? The nation stopped. People flooded into church to pray. And that's really when it was won. We have prayer meeting here. Every fortnight, 9.45. Like, I really believe that at that prayer meeting, every second week, just in one of those rooms upstairs in the Sunday school room, that's when things begin to change. That's when war is waged and battles are won. So if you've never thought about joining us for prayer meeting, let me encourage you in two weeks' time, come, 9.45. The most important thing you can be doing in your life, in the life of our church, for our nation, for your neighbors, for your parents, for your children. Right? Anytime you feel under pressure, anytime you think it seems like the war is being lost, no, no, no. Get to battle, get on your knees and pray. That is where the battle is. Let's pray. Get ready to sing. Father God, we thank you that when we're unsure of what to do in a world that is progressively and 
more and more so putting your people and the gospel under pressure that you have shown us that Jesus is already victorious, that he is our rescuer and savior, and our battle is fought and won by you. And so I pray that we would be a prayerful church. I pray that we would be a prayerful people. And we pray that we would see the miracle of a God who comes and answers prayer in all the big and small things that we pray for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.